we're still clipping along here in our series, and uh, last, last time, you remember I didn't quite get through uh, my sermon on the clarity of Scripture, so we're going to revisit that again and just kind of finish that up and maybe leave some time for some questions at the end, and, and uh, we'll see. But, uh, been enjoying this study. I hope it's been helpful for you. I know it's been encouraging for my heart to kind of go back through and um, relay those convictions about Scripture and the written Word deepening my own devotion to the Word of God. And we've said that everything rises or falls in what we think about the Bible. So e- even in these years of young adult, whether you're in college or you're working or whatever you're doing, um, your convictions about Scripture are absolutely crucial. So it's going to carry you through um, and help you navigate uh, some, some of these turbulent times we find ourselves in. So um, let's take a look at where we've been here. And we'll kind of do a little, little review. I like to kind of try to cement these things um, in our minds. So we looked at uh, week one. We looked at inspiration. So what was that? What is inspiration? How would you define it? God breathed, okay? And it means the scripture is from God, right? It's sourced from him. It's breathed out by him, these key texts say, like 2 Timothy 3.16. So it comes from, comes from God himself. Is given as a gift to us, and what were some of the what were some of the takeaways from inspiration? Like, what? How should that work in our hearts to know that God has given us a book? What are some implications out of that? You've got to dust off the cobwebs in your minds. Remember, what's that? Okay, so yeah, everything God says is true, is trustworthy. Yep, that was week number two. We looked at inerrancy, but we'll get there in a second. Oh, key implications from from the fact that this this, this book actually comes from God. He wants to be heard. Yeah, he wants to make himself known to his creatures. And as his creatures, we are good or bad? Bad. We are rebellious. We're running from him. And so the fact that he has condescended to us and not judged us for our rebellion and come to us with a clear word, like we heard this morning, come to us in his son and died for our sins. Uh, This book is a mercy to us and to every human on this planet. Uh, people buck against it. Unbelievers hate it and chide it and, and try to, you know, poke holes in it. But it, it's a mercy, really, um, to all of us creatures. And it shows us that God wants to relate to us, right? That he wants to, he, what's that? Oh, he definitely, he definitely understands, for sure. And he wants to relate to us. Um, and so I think, you know, if we feel like, okay, where is God? What's he doing? How do I know that he's there? He's there because he's giving you a testimony of his, of his presence. He wants, to, he wants to relate to us. And he wants to relate to us how? Through still small voice? Or through loud, clear text? <laughs> loud, clear text. That's the answer. Okay, I'll go ahead and give it to you. Um, he's given us a book, right? To know him through this, through this book, right? So he, that means we need to understand this book. We need to understand it in context why it was written, and he wants us to treasure and depend on this written text. So, that was all flowing out of just week one, inspiration. So, Chet mentioned that um, because God has given it to us, we could expect that God, since he is perfect, that his words to us are correct and true. Yeah, they're true, or as we're saying here, they're inerrant. That's kind of the negative way of saying it. It means without error. They don't contain errors, or we could say it's what? Positively. Holy true, right? It's holy true. That's a great definition of what we're talking about here when we talk about inerrancy. We talked about how Scripture isn't trying to be like sort of this, have this technical exactness or precision in every case like you would find in sort of a, a chemistry lab, right? The Scripture communicates to us in everyday language, in the language that we communicate in. It uses round numbers, hyperbole. So when we say inerrancy, we're not talking about this sort of technical exactness in every scenario, but what we are talking about is its complete truthfulness, that it's able to make good on its claims. And so, what the fact that the Bible is true, and I've said we're not, right? We're not inerrant. So what does that, what does that imply then? What are, some, what are some things that we should take away as far as like what defines reality for us? What should define reality for us? Scriptures, right? Yeah, not a trick question. The Scriptures define to us what is real. And we have to trust the Scriptures above what we think or above what we feel in ourselves because we are errant. 
and the scriptures are not. So this upends the sort of moral relativism that, we're, that we find ourselves in. This, this book defines what's true and real for us, and it's completely trustworthy. You've got to take it to the bank. You've got to put everything, all of our eggs, in this basket here. Okay? That's what it means to, for this, this book to be inerrant. It's a book like any other book on the planet. It's from God, inspired by Him, wholly true. And next, we looked at the authority of Scripture in week three. And what do we mean when we say that Scripture has authority? It kind of flows out of coming from God and it being completely true. But it has authority. What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's the authority, the guiding truth principle. It takes precedence over us, kind of, like, kind of like what you were saying. You remember how we defined it? Okay, yes. So when anything is an authority over something else, it has the ability to create obligations, right? So we looked at sort of parent-child relationships, <laughs> Parents have the ability, because of their authority, to create obligations in the child. Your boss has authority, which means they have the ability to create obligations uh, in your life, i.e. your job description, right? You don't want to do it, you get fired. So that's what it means to, to bear authority. So when we say scripture has authority, it's because God has authority, right? He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's delegated that to his son, and he's spoken to us in this book. And so this book then creates obligations, in his creatures, which is us, every human, everything on the planet. His word is not advice, it's not opinion. It is the highest and most comprehensive authority. Right? His word is binding on his creatures, which means his creatures must either obey it or face the consequences for their disobedience. Right? That's the reality. And God is merciful. He is abundantly merciful, overflowing with goodness and kindness to us, that he doesn't immediately judge us for our rebellion against this clear word. So he's abounding in mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve, but he won't be mocked either. Yes, God does have wrath, and he will bring that. That's an aspect of his goodness. So if God didn't punish sin, he would not be good. So his wrath, his punishment for sin is, is part of who he is as far as his, his goodness is concerned. Yeah, so that's what we mean when we say Scripture has authority over us, it means it, it creates obligations in us. And then number four, we said that Scripture is powerful. Scripture is powerful. So not only does it have authority, does it wear the badge, but it also has the gun, right? It has the, has the, the power to enforce that authority, right? God's words are an active power. And we said God's power is able to what? able to accomplish all it intends. The fact that the scriptures have got, that, that the scriptures are part of, are, um, are God's power, that the scriptures are then able to accomplish everything that God intends them to accomplish. So, key verse on that. What do you, what do you, what do you remember? Key verse on this one? Isaiah 55, what does it say? You don't have to quote it verbatim, just the, the general. Yep, that's right. Word of God's going to go forward. His promises particularly in Isaiah, in that context, his promise to restore Israel and the nations. Um, and that's not going to return void. Uh, it's going to accomplish. His word is going to accomplish all that he intends it to accomplish. And so we saw just how powerful his word is. We looked at a lot of those categories uh, through Scripture. We looked at, what are some of them? You tell me. What does God's word do? It creates. Which we just kind of say that. <laughs> it creates. Moving on. Like, oh, hang on, hang on. <laughs> Whoa, like that's huge. Okay, it created everything there is out of nothing. Okay, and then what else? What a... Okay, it reveals the human heart. Yep. So even before that one, well, let's, let's, let's dog ear that one. It sustains the creation too. So it creates everything. God's word brings everything into existence and then it upholds everything. It keeps everything going. It, it sort of is like, it steers it to its appointed end. God's word is doing all that, the Bible says. It's what it claims. And you said, uh, Greg said it, it, it also, what did you say? Reveals the human heart. So, yeah, if you think like creation, like his, God's doing these grand things by his word, which they are, um, things that should inspire awe in us. He then gets to sort of the microscopic level, the most intimate part of who we are, our hearts, our wills, our desires. And the Bible reads you like a book. It opens you up. It tells you what's actually inside you and what your real problems are, and what the real solutions are for those problems. 
I've said it before, but just kind of provocatively, but the Bible has its own psychology, right? It brings this to you and helps you see. No one knows us like our maker does, and so it, it reveals the human heart. It, it talks to us about what's really wrong and the solutions for it. So it reveals hearts. What else does it do? Does it just, does it just bag and tag us? Creates converts. The Word of God brings people to life. Yes. Brings people to life. So if you heard the gospel, you believed it, you saw your sin, you knew you need for Christ. Why? Why did you do that? Because God's Word brought you to life. Opened your eyes. Gave you spiritual life. Helped you see. He called you forward. Just like he kind of, he called Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus obeyed him and came out. Um, That's what happened to you spiritually. God called you out from your spiritual deadness, Ephesians 2, to life uh, through his word. Yeah, it creates converts. What else? What does it do to his enemies? Hardens his enemies. So again, it's tempting to think, God's word spoken, God's word preached. I, I talked to my family at Christmas about it, and they got mad at me. And we think, God's word must not be powerful. Actually, it is, um, because God's word doesn't return void, as A55, and God's word often, for people who rebel against it, further hardens them. So that is a sobering thought. But God's word is, 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 is working one way or another. It's either creating converts or it's hardening, hardening people. We talked about that. And not only does it create us, but what else happens to us? What does the word of God do once we're, once we're saved? It grows us, right? The word of God grows us. It continues to deepen our convictions. We, we, it exposes lies that we continue to believe. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. Um, that's, what, that's what Jesus says. So the truth will continue to sanctify and transform his people. And ultimately, it will defeat his enemies, right? The word of God, God's word, defeats his enemies. Christ will return, and Christ will be boasting, and then he'll speak a word of judgment, and that arch enemy will be destroyed. So, God's word does an awful lot, and that's just, those are just some examples of the power of, of God's word, the power that we have in our hands. And so, we were talking through that, and there's just, that should give us all kinds of confidence, right? Confidence in our lives that God's going to continue to grow us, that no matter how difficult the, the besetting sins you face are, this word is powerful, and God's spirit is going to use this word to continue to grow you over time. And, it should fill us with confidence when we think about God's mission. God's word's not going to come back void, and it's going to accomplish everything he intends. Churches will be planted. It's not if. It's just a matter of when. When is the Lord of, of the harvest going to say, okay, planting the church there. Now's the time. I'm going to raise this guy up. I'm going to send him there. My people are in that city. I want them to preach. It's just the word of God's going to accomplish all there is. So we need to know it, right? We need to depend on it. We don't want to empty the word of its power by turning to other, other things. All right, so last week we pivoted and we started talking about the clarity of Scripture. The clarity of Scripture. Now, those of you who are here, what does this mean? When we say that the Scripture is clear? Not a trick question. Yeah, it's able to communicate. It's able to make its meaning known to you. Its content, we said, is inherently accessible and understandable. Okay? Its content is inherently accessible and understandable. In other words, we said when God speaks, he doesn't stutter, he doesn't mumble. Um, He's been very clear with us. He's he's given us clear words. He's able to communicate to us, and they are able to be understood. And that's just on the front end, just super encouraging. It's super encouraging because the Lord wants to communicate with us. He's able to do that. He wants to he wants us to know his heart. He wants us to know his mind. He wants us to know what he's up to in the world, how to participate in, with him in that as his people. He's given us clear directions. He, he, he's told us what we need to be about. And so he wants us to follow that clear word and not kind of lead us around, you know, kind of like a wild goose chase of trying to, like, read the signs and follow the breadcrumbs and follow how we might feel and, and follow intuitions. And, like, he's given us clarity. Uh, the scriptures are clear, and from cover to cover, it just assumes that. So, we looked at this under three headings, and uh, this is lesson five. I know we're technically in lesson six, but this is like 5B, okay? Um, we looked at the first two headings last week, and we, we saw that this, the, the, this, this view that scripture is clear is just sort of assumed from cover to cover. 
it's assumed in the Bible that the Bible is able to be understood. And we looked at a number of these, a number of these evidences, we could say, uh, and we saw that from Deuteronomy, that it's clear enough, the Scriptures are clear enough for parents to understand it, the book of Deuteronomy, and to teach this to their kids. So Deuteronomy 6, he says, This word shall be on your heart, you shall teach them to your children. So this word's able to be understood, it's able to be internalized for parents. And it's, underst- it's clear enough that even kids can get it, right? Kids can understand, hey, we were redeemed out of Egypt, okay, with a mighty hand. God put us here in this land. He gave us this law. He's told us what this law is. Honor my father and my mother, and I'll live long in the land, right? I mean, that's just using Deuteronomy's language there. But it's, it's clear. It's accessible. The word is near you, Moses says. And not only for the folks of Deuteronomy, but it's clear enough for even the simple to understand and become wise. Psalm 19. It's clear enough for the simple to understand it and become wise. So if you're simple in the Bible, uh, that's not good. Okay, It's not, not good to be simple because you're gullible, you're easily led astray, uh, you're immature. So this simple person is able to understand it, the Psalm 19 says, and by understanding it become wise kind of graduate from the simple state and actually get, gain God's mind and his wisdom. And that assumes that the Bible is just, it's, it's clear. It's not, it's not in riddles. It's also clear enough to bring wide-scale repentance just from reading it out loud. We looked at this story last time. But the story in Israel's history, they had lost the book of the law. They had lost Deuteronomy and the Torah. And it was kind of buried in the temple and Josiah was, was, was trying to spruce up the temple, and they found the book of the law. And they're like, oh. So they bring it out, and it was kind of the way this talked about. It's like they didn't really know what it was, and so they started reading it. It's like, oh, my goodness, what's out? You know, and so they're like, better take this to the king. So they take it to the king, and they read it in the king's presence, and he just, they just read it out loud, and the king just rips his clothes. And he says, like, the wrath of God is about to fall upon us because we've not been obeying this book. <laughs> So very clear, wide-scale repentance just from, just from reading it out loud. There's lots of examples of that in, in the Bible. It's also clear enough that the authors expect that their readers can and should understand it. That's just sort of the, the, the baseline. You, you read any of these intros or purpose statements in, like in that, I gave you Luke, in Luke chapter 1 or, or 1 John 5. It's, it's so clear. The authors, just as they're writing it, they expect to be understood. And that's, that's true of any, any communication, right? Like you go, you talk to your, your family, you talk to your friends, your roommates, whatever. You expect them to understand you. Uh, that's kind of the nature of communication. But Scripture just kind of assumes this, that, that, it's, that it's accessible and understandable. All right? So we looked at that. This cover-to-cover just sort of assumes Scripture's clarity. And then the, the second heading that we looked at is this, what we've called the complications to Scripture's clarity, which meaning... Okay, if the Bible is so clear, Clay, then why am I often stumped in my Bible reading plan? <laughs> you know, I'm reading through it, and it doesn't seem clear. I don't seem to know what this means or how it applies to me. Um, so why might that be? If you're saying Scripture is so clear, why, why does it seem muddled to me at, at times? Well, we, we saw this last time. We, looked, we won't go into all the details, but just by review here, it's not the problem is not the book. The problem is the receptor of the book, right? So it's like, it's like someone who is blind who goes outside on a sunny day and says, I can't see the sun. Was the problem with the sun? No, the sun's shining. The sun's doing what it's supposed to do. It's shining. It's very clear. The problem is with the person who's receiving the sun. The sun. He can't see it because of his blindness. And so... The scriptures are clear that unbelievers are suppressing the truth. They're hardened in their hearts. They're unable to perceive its truthfulness and submit to it. So unbelief is the, is the common culprit there. Unbelief is sort of the blindness of the soul that's unable to see the light of truth. So just because an unbeliever can't understand it doesn't mean that the Bible's not true. Okay, Unbelief is that, is that blindness of the soul. 
we looked at a second one, and it was, uh, so that's in the unbelieving world. You say, okay, Clay, well, what about for me? Uh, are you saying I'm an unbeliever if things are confusing? Uh, no, because you're still growing, okay? So when we come to faith in Christ, our understanding is progressive, right? We're growing. We're, our, our maturity uh, should escalate as we continue to uh, be in the church and grow. But immaturity, we also saw, is a hindrance to understanding kind of the, the deeper things, deeper doctrine, um, in terms of what the, what the scriptures teach. So we looked at Hebrews 5 on that, and it talked about, you know, they should be teachers, they should be progressing at this point, but they're not. They've, they've grown dull of hearing, and so they need milk again, and they can't hear, they can't receive the solid food of the deeper doctrine um, that the author of Hebrews wanted to teach them about. So immaturity um, often hinders our experience, we could say, hinders our experience of Scripture's clarity. And then also, in tandem with that, there are those deeper passages. There are harder passages to understand, deeper doctrine, things that require spiritual maturity to, to comprehend and get our minds around. There are difficult passages. And Peter himself acknowledges that there are some things that Paul writes that are hard to understand. Um, so that gives us great encouragement that even Peter was acknowledging that some of the stuff that Paul writes uh, is, is tough to understand. And uh, we joked around about Romans 7. It's probably one of those ones he had in his mind uh, as, a, as a challenging passage. But, um, yeah, these hard passages keep us humble. They keep us dependent on the Lord. But the, just because a passage is hard doesn't mean it's, it's unclear. It, 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 again, the problem comes back to, to us and our need to, to grow into those things. All right, so that complicates Scripture's clarity. Another one that we saw is bad teachers complicate Scripture's clarity. What I mean by bad teachers is, you know, both the false teacher and the unclear teacher, or the teacher that probably shouldn't be a teacher, right? He's not qualified, he's not gifted, um, he's self-appointed, or she's self-appointed. They're on the Internet, they're doing their podcast, you know, and it's just muddling the truth. Because they've not, they've not gone through the process of being vetted, like the scriptures say. They've not been appointed as an elder of a church anywhere, like the scriptures say. And so a lot of times these people are going rogue. They're self-appointed. And it's, it's all over. You know? So the internet's a blessing and a curse. Uh, the blessings, we have such, ex, such free exposure to so much good content. Uh, the curse is that there's probably five times as much bad content as there is good um, in the, on the internet. So... You've got that going on. Um, and then, obviously, you've got the false teacher who's actively trying to deceive you uh, out there in these last days. So that complicates Scripture's clarity because there's a lot of voices going on out there. And so that's, that's why we're going to talk about some of the provisions here in a minute. Um, so we looked at, at bad teaching is a hindrance. And then we also looked at just kind of a more benign issue, but um, I'm calling this cultural distance. So we're 2,000 years removed from the latest documents in the Bible. Uh, much older than that for portions of the Old Testament. But at least, at a minimum, we're 2,000 years removed from the culture, from the languages of the Bible, uh, from its original audience and who it was written for. So that's going to complicate things a bit. It doesn't mean it's, it's, it's uh, not able to be overcome. We have to study to show ourselves approved and want to make sure that we're understanding what the Bible says in its context. But there is some, some difficulties there with that cultural distance. All right, so that's, that's where we landed last week. And if there's some questions on that, we'll, we'll, we'll cycle back around here. I want to finish up this lesson real quick uh, as we get in a running start and do, okay, those are some complications. Has God just sort of left us alone with, with those complications? Well, no, he hasn't. He's actually given us some provisions for our experience of the Bible's clarity. He's provided for what we need, in other words. He's going to help us to experience um, the scripture's clarity. I actually don't know if it's in my water or not. I'm going to put that back during flu season. And as you're writing that down, I'm going to get a little bit of water right here. All right, so I'll play Reed Clay's mind. What do you think is going to be the first provision for scripture's clarity? What do you think? Okay, the Spirit. Yes, illumination from God, right? So, 
the beautiful thing about the Bible is that we have a divine interpreter, a divine assistance in reading it and understanding it, and that's, the, that's God himself, and we could say, theologically, it's through the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So he's going to help us. There's an assurance here, out of the gate, that you, you didn't understand, you didn't perceive the truthfulness of the gospel on your own in the first place. God opened your eyes, he opened your mouth, you heard the shepherd, he opened your ears to hear his mouth, um, hear his voice, and so you recognize the shepherd's voice. He did that through his spirit. So that was regeneration and the illuminating work of God. So he's opened your, you, you got a question? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yep. Yeah, for sure. That's a great point. We're going to get there in, in some of these. Um, but he, if you couldn't hear what he was saying, he was saying we've, you know, post-Reformation, printing press, all those things, we have the Bible widely disseminated in, in multiple languages. And so we're going to get there in just a minute, but just our, impersonally, our English translations are a mercy from God. So you don't want to fall, that's why we're there, you don't want to fall off the, the wagon. The good thing about the Reformation is it kind of got it out of Latin and out of the hands of the Roman Catholic Church, right? So the danger of that, especially when you pair that with American individualism, is that you don't need the church, right? So like we all have it in our English, and so we're all Christians, we're all priesthood believers, and so we don't need the church or church leadership to help us understand. So we're going to see both of those coming to bear here in just a second. We'll start with illumination, the Spirit. God himself is promises to help us understand. And look at some of this. Look at, look at some of these verses. I love these verses. These are some of the most encouraging verses um, that we can, we can read when it comes to reading our Bibles, trying to understand it, listening to preaching, trying to lean in. You know, He says, Philippians 3, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he's been talking about growth and sanctification in this Philippians 3. And then he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Okay, so he's calling the Philippian church to think like him, to think like he's just laid out in Philippians 3. And then he says, and if in anything you think otherwise, in other words, if you disagree with the apostles, you know, and, you're thinking, and you're, your thinking has been unrenewed in these ways, or you're believing lies, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. I love the confidence of Paul here. So we can just rest easy. Okay, you know, if, if there's wrong thinking, there's lies that are kind of hindering you, God in his good providence and kindness toward you at the right time is going to bring that to light in his love for you. He's going to reveal those things to you also. I love that. I love that. Here's another one. 2 Timothy 2.7. Here he's talking to Timothy. His prote- Paul's talking to Timothy, his protege in the faith. And he says, he's just told him some things. He says, think over what I say meaning meditate, really, on what I just wrote to you in this portion of, of in my letter. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, I love this because it helps us see, okay, how illumination works, right? Is illumination just a download where it's just like, I don't put any effort in? What's the command? Think. <laughs> Use your brain. You know, think over what I say. Meditate on it. Chew on it. We're going to see. We're going to, there's some pursuits here that we need to take that God expects that to happen. Because, but why do we think? Why do we think hopefully? Why do we meditate with hope that we're going to understand? Because the Lord himself will give you understanding in everything. So illumination. God's, God's wanting to turn the lights on in your, in your house. I told, I've, I've said this before, but I think it's a helpful illustration. You can think of conversion like, you know, you're in your house and the power is completely shut off from the street. You don't have any power coming into your house. So then at conversion, you know, they turn the power on and now your house has electricity, right? But all the switches in the rooms aren't turned on. So now the spirit goes through the rooms of the house and starts flicking the lights on, right? You couldn't get those lights on if you didn't have the power coming into your house in the first place. It's a crude illustration, I get it. But that's kind of how those things work together. Illumination is continued, is progressive. The Lord will give, you hear that future, the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And it's comprehensive, in everything. 
So it's clear from this text that the Lord uses means like meditation, thinking hard about Scripture. What else might the Lord use as a means to illuminate? What, what, what things do you need to do to sort of activate the Lord's illuminating power? Pray. Pray. Ask Him for it. You see that over and over again in Scripture. Open my eyes and I might behold wondrous things out of your law. What is that? Psalm 119. That's a prayer for illumination. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, prayers for illumination, asking the Lord to, to turn the lights on, keep turning the lights on. So pray, prayer, obviously hard work in meditation, hard work in study, hard work in, in thinking about what these things mean, leaning into good preaching, all that stuff. Sticking with it over time, you know, it's easy for us just to kind of be like, oh, didn't know that, don't, I don't understand that, I'm giving up. Can't get it. It's just like, that's not the way this works, okay? That's not the way this works. You've got to keep leaning in, persevere, because, why? Because God's going to keep giving you understanding. So encouraging. So encouraging. God wants us to know his word, and he's committed to us to helping us understand it. So as you're coming to church week in and week out, as you're hearing sermons, and you're thinking, I could never get that, you know, from that sermon. I don't know how, it, man, that's a, be, now that you say it, though, it's like, Evident, you know, it's, how did I miss that? Um, and it can be discouraging, like, oh, I'm never going to get to the specialist level. But go to 2 Timothy 2.7. No, the Lord's going to give me understanding. He really is. And, and by the way, I'm going to thank God for gifted individuals that he's raising up to help me understand, because that's another provision, right? Qualified pastors and teachers are another provision from God to us to help us gain access to this clear word. So we don't want to just throw that out post-Reformation. Um, Martin Luther would not have wanted us to throw that out. Uh, because pastors and teachers are a clear gift from God. And again, massive asterisks on that, like qualified pastors and teachers. doesn't just mean anybody who's self-appointed just gets to go up there and start talking about the Bible with authority, right? But it's, it's men who have been vetted by other qualified men and installed as these pastors and teachers. They're gifts to the church. Look, at, look with me. It's a very familiar text. This is speaking of Christ. And he, Christ, gave... So here's the gift. It's from him, so we don't want to neglect it. He gave the apostles and the prophets. Okay? They were alive at the time of writing this. They've since died, and they gave us this. Tracking with me? Okay, the apostles and prophets... The evangelists think church planter and the shepherds and teachers think long-term leadership in the church. Why? Why did he give us all these gifts? Apostles and prophets, evangelists who are planting churches, pastors and teachers, shepherds and teachers who are, who are long-term, long-term leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So the point here is that they're given to us to help us understand the scriptures, and that if you were to look in this context, it's the idea that the truth comes to us through these, through these men, it's explained to us through these men, so that we're able to build up each other in the truth. So, super important that we recognize the, the gift of leadership in a church, and again, there's got to be qualified men according to Titus 1. We've got to meet certain qualifications, Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3. Uh, you, many churches just skip over that. Uh, that's very important. One of those qualifications is they got to be able to teach. So the person who's teaching you, you need to walk away from that with clarity. And that means they have the gift of teaching. Okay, this makes sense to me. This is, I, I, clear, I, I clearly see what this means from this verse. And I'm walking away with, with clarity. That's the, that's, that comes from the gift of teaching. doesn't mean the guy's super dynamic. doesn't mean he's full of personality. doesn't mean he's funny. He can be all those things. But the gift of teaching is when you get clarity from the Bible as a result of him explaining it to you. That's, that's teaching. All right, and, and qualified men, men that should be appointed, other elders need to be recognizing that and appointing those men who give clarity in Scripture. And so that means these kind of guys are going to be vetted very carefully. And you see that over in 1 Timothy 5. He says, don't lay hands on them too quickly, Timothy. Meaning, don't put them in positions of authority too quickly. 1 Timothy 5. So, 
we want to make use of this. And what that means is just, okay, if you've got pastors and teachers in your church, guess what? Application point. Ask them questions, right? It doesn't annoy us, okay? We're not too busy to receive your questions. So don't, don't think, oh, he's just too busy. They're too busy. Or I can never go talk to Pastor Farrell because he's got a da, da, da. That's why he's here, right? Is to help you understand. Even if it's in your personal Bible reading. We might, know that, we might not know the answer, but we're paid to do this, right? Like we're set aside by the church to shepherd you and help equip you. So the point here is like lean in. Lean into the sermons. Lean into all those things that you've been given. Um, because that's God's means of helping you get clarity in the scriptures. Okay? Pretty clear. Just wanted to hammer that home. All right, what's another one? It's not just from the pastors and teachers, though. Because once the truth permeates the church, once the truth starts growing in the midst of the body, everybody else has gifts, too. And so as we serve together in discipleship relationships within the body, we begin to influence each other. We mature and that, guess what that maturity does? Remember the hindrance? Sometimes we don't understand Scripture because we're immature. Well, as we grow, as we, as we get in these discipleship relationships in the church, as we grow, as we make progress, we're speaking the truth to each other in love, we're each other. We're all able to help us gain clarity in the Scriptures because we're, we're growing and maturing. Look at this, look at this verse. He says, this is, comes at the tail end of the verse I just read about the, the pastors and the teachers. So the idea is like you've got Christ as the head. He's given these gifts to the church. Some of those gifts are pastors and teachers. They're helping equip you, and they're equipping you for this purpose so that you use your gifts, and you're speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So the church is supposed to reverberate the truth in its relationships. And as the church is doing that, as we're growing together, as you're coming alongside other people and encouraging them, praying with them, speaking truth to them, then they're going to mature too. And guess what all that does? It's like, it's like one major organism that's alive, and the net effect of that is your experience of clarity in the Bible. You're going to go back to your Bible with being more mature. You're going to be able to understand it. All right. Let me get, let's get a little more practical here. A little more practical here. We talked about discipleship of the church, but let's, let's tease this on down to some, even some specific provisions uh, for our access to Scripture's clarity. And one of those things we just talked about was the range of English translations that we have available to us today. Historically, this is amazing. This is amazing that we have such good translations. It's, not, it's amazing that we have translations, period, okay? So let's just, that's a, incredible, you know. And not only that, but we have some amazing translations, like into English. Like it is, I've gone, to, I've gone to other countries where they don't have such good translations into their mother tongue. You know, Nepal is, is one of those places. They have a translation. It's wonderful. It's able to get the word of God to them. God can even work through subpar translations, for sure. But I talked to the Nepali pastors. They're like, we need a new translation. You know, uh, this is, there's things that are, that, are, that are not right here, things we're constantly having to re-explain. And so I, I think that's been in the works. It's been years since I've been there, so hopefully that's happened now. But my point is, not only do we have translations, we have great translations. So you're saying, okay, what are they? We've got a range of them. And let me kind of break this down for you in a big chart that I didn't, that I didn't make. Okay, I ripped this off the internet. Um, so if you want to find something like this for yourself, just go on good old Google and uh, type it in. Type in translations, uh, English translations, chart. And you'll bring a, it'll bring up something like this. Now let me explain it to you. When it comes to English translations, um, it's not like a one-size-fits-all. They're not all the same. So it's important to know as you're kind of wading in to the myriad of, of, of translations that are at your fingertips. There's a spectrum, and they all have, almost all of them, have their advantages and disadvantages, okay? So on your left, you've got the word-for-word translations. So you think of those as like, these are literal translations, or as, as literal as they can. And there's less interpretation 
that happens from the from the the translator into English, then on the right side of that, is that right? Is the right side of that of that um, chart. Okay? So left side is literalistic, less interpretation. Right side is more paraphrase, obviously, and a higher level of interpretation. Meaning they're taking this original Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever whatever it was written in. These really smart people are understanding it, they're digesting it on this right side of the spectrum, and they're trying to get it in language that an English speaker natively understands. It's easier for the English speaker, right? Does that make sense? So right in the middle, you kind of have these like thought-for-thought translations, which the NIV and the NLT are some of the most common of those. NIV is a little more literalistic than the NLT, but they're both, on the whole, good sort of interpretive translations. When you start getting into the paraphrase, especially further down, you've kind of got the message, you know, way down there, you can see MSG, that's what that stands for. Um, you're kind of getting off the reservation a little bit. Uh, it's, it's like, it becomes a, not even a commentary, it's just, it's just sort of this guy's sort of musings on what he thinks would best communicate, what he thinks the author's intention is there. And it's, it's kind of getting way, way down the line there. I'm not saying it's completely unhelpful in every scenario. It could be helpful to you at different points. But the point here is, okay, my advice would be get a literal translation. Now, that has its disadvantages, too. So you think, okay, word for word, that's what I want. You know, and then you hit, gird up the loins of your minds. You're like, huh? Like, what does that mean, you know? And, it, it, like, gird? Like, you might think girdle? That might be the only thing, the, the might, that might be, if you're an athlete, the only experience you have with that word, right? Like, what does that mean? You're not... You don't, men don't wear togas, and they don't have to go like this and tuck it in their belt, right, today. So most English speakers do not understand what that means, right? So a literal translation is going to give you that. They're going to say, gird up the loins of your minds. And you're going to say, what? And so that's an advantage or disadvantage depending on how you look at it, right? If the goal is clarity, the goal is understanding, then you want something helping you understand what that means, Right? My argument is, let's not just punt, let's understand what the Bible means on its own terms. You tracking with me? So let me develop its own categories in my own mind, right? So if I don't know what gird up the loins of my mind means, then that means, guess what? I got some homework to do, right? I, that's going to help me understand that culture of what the, what, the, what the Bible is written in. So my advice would be, get a word-for-word, a NASB or an ESV are kind of two of my preferences, um, NASB is going to be probably the most wooden of them all in terms of just word for word. ESV gives you a little bit of interpretation, a tiny little bit. So, for example, um, that one, the gird up the loins of your minds, 1 Peter 1, it doesn't say that. It says, I think, preparing your minds for action as a footnote, helpful footnote, and then in the bottom it says, Greek, gird up the loins of your minds. So that's like, in my mind, best case scenario, right? Like it gives you a footnote, and some of the other literal translations will do the same thing. We'll footnote things for you and help you understand that. So, you got more of the word-for-word on the, on the one end. I would say get one of those and then consult those two in the middle, NIV, NLT. And I like the NLT a lot. It's, it's interpretive, but the advantage of the NLT is it had a, a scholar of every book. Okay? It wasn't just a committee. It was a scholar of every book that provided the translation for each of those books. And the benefit of that is you've got, a, you've got an expert, at least, theoretically, you've got an expert who's rendering the translation into this sort of dynamic translation for an English speaker. Now, it is going to be interpreted. So it's going to treat it more like a commentary. Is, there, is it sort of telling you what they think it means? But you don't just have, you don't just have a, like a five-person committee doing this for the whole Bible. You've got a bunch of scholars doing this, and they've been tapped to do that particular book because that's their baby, right? Many of them have written commentaries on those, those very books. Do you have a question? Yeah. Yep. Because we've discovered older manuscripts, and traditionally there was like one manuscript family that was kind of like produced the King James Bible. Not one manuscript family. That's my point. I'm trying to simplify it. There was one stream of manuscripts. When I say that, do you understand what I'm talking about? 
Uh, oh, we're opening a can with two minutes left. Let's do it. So, Bible is written in different languages, right? Like Greek, let's just take the New Testament. They started, there was one, one copy, right? The inspired copy from the author's pen. Everybody immediately knew this is, this is God's word, this is important, we need to make as many copies as we can. So they start trying to copy these things. And they copied them, and copied them, and copied them, and copied them. And this is like, I told them one, one of these messages, Oedipus Rex is like the most widely copied ancient document apart from the Bible. And if you had like a, if you had like a uh, bar graph, it would be like Oedipus Rex, Bible. It's like, it's the, ne- it's the second. It's the second most copied in all of ancient literature, and the Bible like dwarfs it in terms of its number of copies. So my point is that people, that's, that, that's, there's an advantage that we have to that because now we have all these copies, but those copies made copies, right? So you have these families, they call them these families of, of copies of the Bible. So we're constantly discovering things, right? Yeah. So the King James Bible, great, great translation for its day, uh, came from a, a certain manuscript family tradition. We've since found older ones that are more reliable, that have actually given us a lot of clarity in terms of the, that, that stream of tradition. It's not, it wasn't like wildly different, but there were some manuscripts that were, that were, that were helpful. So, for example, John 8, the woman at the well, in lots of these traditions, we think that's probably a story that happened, that was, that was told and circulated, but it just shows up at random places throughout the manuscript tradition. Like nobody really knew where to put it. And so they don't think it was originally there in John, the Gospel of John. Does that make sense? That's right. So to answer your question, long answer to, a, to your question is just translation committees will make different decisions on some of that stuff. Okay, like NASB will say like, hey, abundance of caution, we're just going to bracket it for you. ESV does the same thing at different points. They might bracket things to show you, okay, I think John 8, I think it's in the ESV, but it's bracketed. You know, have a footnote that says not in the earliest manuscripts. So it just, it's an indicator. And again, that's not meant to undermine the, the confidence that we have in the Bible because these, like I said, it's the most widely copied book known to man. And through this process of what's called textual criticism, you can get back to being pretty sure in almost like 98% of the instances that we have the original text. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's why that's the case. Yep. That's a great question. And... I may have, if, may, may have raised other questions, or I may not have handled that. You've got, got a bunch of seminary guys here who are like, ready to get me. Jojo's ready to get me. All right, go ahead, Jojo. Yep. Okay. Yep. So he, that's the NLT, and then there's also a, a Bible called the NET, the NET Bible, NET. The translation isn't always the greatest in terms of like, you know, I'd still, I'd still rather prefer you reading an Asbury or an ESV. But the, the notes, kind of like Jojo was saying, are outstanding. So they, they give you a lot of data, especially more on the scholarly end. So if you're kind of a brain and you like that stuff, then the Net Bible notes, and I think they're free online. You can look at those online. But they're translators' notes, and they help you understand, okay, why, why did they, why did they take these, make these decisions? Um, very, very helpful. Good question. Let me, just, let me just rip through my last point real, real quick. Faithful study Bibles. That's another provision that God's given us. Um, and I'm just going to mention a few of them. Very little commentary. Uh, major caveat, this doesn't mean that there aren't any other faithful study Bibles other than the ones I'm about to tell you. Okay? I can't possibly have time to, uh, to disseminate and understand all the study Bibles out there. Uh, but as far as like a one-stop shop goes, that's probably... There's a lot more we could talk about about resources and Bible study, okay? Um, that's probably a discussion for, definitely a discussion for another time. But here, if you want some, some kind of faithful study Bibles that I would recommend, obviously you've got the MacArthur Study Bible, which is a great, great resource. Very good. Highly recommend the MacArthur Study Bible. Uh, it's fairly affordable. Another one that's in print that I kind of cut my teeth on was the ESV Study Bible. Now, we're probably going to agree with, with there's going to be a few, a few differences 
uh, in some of, the, some of the notes from maybe what you'll hear here at this church, which is why I recommended MacArthur first. But the ESV Study Bible is a very, very good Bible. Great notes, really helpful pictures, maps, all kinds of things. Great articles in the back. Uh, I, I kind of cut my teeth on the ESV Study Bible. was very, very helped by that. Um, there's a third one that I'm recommending with caution, but looks really cool. Um, it just came out, and it's called the NIV um, Biblical Theology Study Bible. The NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible. And it, what it does, you can look, at, you look it up. It's about the, the, the leather bound, I think, runs about 50 bucks on Amazon. And um, what, its goal is to help you understand sort of the redemptive thread of the Bible and how the parts fit into the whole. So pretty unique. I've not really seen anything like that. And there are like really, really, really sharp guys that are the editing committee. Uh, outstanding guys. So... Again, and I'm not going to say that I endorse everything in there, all their views. No, 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 no. I don't know. I've not, I've not read it. But it looks very, very interesting to me. And it's in the NIV. It kind of is in the middle of that, middle of that range there. Um, might be a good alternative for you if you say, hey, I've got a NASB. I'd really like to pick up another study Bible. Maybe that would be a good, good option. A lot of you are saying, hey, Clay, like, I really love it whenever you preach this passage. You go back to the Old Testament and you show us the background and then how that carries over into the New. You guys like that? It like helps the Bible come together for you. Imagine a whole study Bible that does that with lots of articles and things that would be devoted to kind of helping you do that. I don't want to oversell it because I've never read it, but it looks, it looks promising, and um, I would be interested if you do have one uh, to see it. Um, I actually might order one just because I, I saw it come out. I think it would be a good resource. So I'm done, and uh, again, I know this leaves a lot, to be, a lot to be asked as far as like, Bible study, what do you do, how do you do it? And like I said, I'm going to try to teach a whole message, maybe two messages on that at the beginning of of next semester. Uh, Just kind of how to read your Bible, uh, just not super comprehensive, just, hey, give me some tips, and uh, I'm going to give you some of those that I think will take you a long way in Bible reading without having to sit through a whole class on hermeneutics, okay? All right, we are dismissed. Thank you guys for hanging with me. Good questions.